are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Experimental. Structural. Dark. Ben Furman teaches composition and computer music at Oakland University and Mott Community College. His compositional process focuses on the exploration of space, timbre, and the interaction of sound sources both traditional and unconventional, and includes acoustic, acousmatic, and interactive works. His music has been performed throughout the world. Well, welcome, Ben. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I was, uh, I was, I guess the most, the most recent on, on your, your guys's podcast, when's your next one coming out? The, um, the patch in podcast. Uh, well, we have totally been slacking on that because, Uh, you know, I'm teaching at two different colleges and Nate is running the tech department, uh, for the music department at Grand Valley. So Mm -hmm. we've kind of been putting it off, uh, but (laughs) It looks like we are going to shoot uh, later in March, uh, and then we're going to probably put that out within a week. And awesome. I have a lead for an April guest already, so that will hopefully happen as long as I don't go slightly insane with all of the grading <laughs> and projects and general yeah, student ap- emails. April can be a little bit uh, hectic, especially when you're trying to put out stuff that doesn't involve uh, your job in any way. Um, right. Yeah, yes. T.S. Eliot said that uh, April is the cruelest month, but uh, I don't think he was a professor at that time when no, he wrote that. Not. <laughs> so we're going to talk about uh, two of your pieces today, and uh, we're going to start off with the shorter one and end with your your pretty massive uh, work for Fixed Media. So both of these pieces are for Fixed Media, and the one I want to start off with is L'Esprit Enquiette. Yep. And uh, that was a pretty new piece, just written last year. Uh, yeah, I mean, last year meaning late December. So really so, new, yeah. It's really new, yeah. Uh, that was one I had started kind of playing around with it uh, back in uh, maybe September, October. I don't remember when I really started. Uh, but again, teaching, you just don't have the time to write yeah. as much as you want. No, I know. I finished like... This December, I finished uh, two brand new pieces in like three weeks, and oh. and they had been, you know, I had kind of been picking at them the entire fall semester. But it really took being on break to just like sit down and okay, let's let's focus, let's finish these things. So I definitely f- feel that whole like teaching really inhibits any sort of creativity. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not that I don't love my students, but uh, you know, if they're listening, you are killing my creative life here. <laughs> so uh, this piece, um, I based on your description, it doesn't seem like you even could have written this piece uh, even a year before. So, well, I mean, maybe, maybe, but what specifically is this piece about? Um. Well, obviously, back in 2016, we had a little election in the U.S. that did not go as I had hoped it would, or as, as indeed as many, many, <laughs> actually, many the plus majority. three million additional people. I might add. <laughs> uh, so we ended up with a uh, raving lunatic as president, and you know that's uh, a problem. And uh, writing the Spriyonkiet was kind of my attempt at uh, 
coming to some sort of uh, way of dealing with that and examining my mental state and the constant anxiety of, okay, every time I open Twitter, you know, what happened? Mm, yeah. What, what's damage control now? You know, oh, look, Trump ate 15 puppies on live TV. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Actually, yeah. that might, that might not even be a newsworthy day for him. You know, it wouldn't be, you know, it's, uh, I'm waiting to, uh, you know, see when uh, Cheetos officially endorses him as their uh, preferred candidate for 2020 <laughs> or just any other idiotic thing. Like, you know, now he's, uh, we're doing this on what, March 3rd. So he yeah. is trying to start a trade war. Right yeah. Now. Uh-huh. Yay. Yeah. And, and last week it was something like it, it, it gets hard to even keep track of everything, you know, he's, and I feel like, especially in this country, but you know, kind of the entire world, we've been moving to this for a while. This kind of like our lives are only in 24 hour cycles. Right. You know, so I, and I think he has, he's kind of pushed that over the edge to where, you know, we, we truly are, you know, wake up. Okay. Refresh. What the hell's going on today? What happened tomorrow? I don't, or, or what happened yesterday? I don't know. Yeah. You know, well, it, I'm sure it was something awful, but I like if you ask me, I mean, I have a, I have a particularly flawed concept of past time anyway. Like I can never tell like, oh, how old was I or or what was happening when this I, I don't know. I know it happened, but I, I, have, I don't have a really good concept of the past. But um, but it, that it, like living now with Trump era politics has even made that worse. You know, oh, I, I, have, yeah. I like I, I have no idea when things happen with him. I just know it's all bad. Yeah. And it really just the whole 24 hour media cycle in the U.S. drives me up the walls. There's no yeah. analysis. There's no subtlety. There's no mm-hmm. interpretation. Um, I mean, for years going back, even as far as I think uh, the early 2000s, the George W. Bush era, I stopped really following the news in the U.S. except for the New York Times and you know, the Wall Street Journal, except for their editorial page, mm-hmm. uh, and started really switching over to, like, The Guardian or Le Monde or La Liberation. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm forced to go to other countries to get actual <laughs> analysis of U.S. issues, which is, frankly, bullshit. But... It is. So how, like, how have you kind of turned this this kind of frustration and I, I and speaking for myself, like frustration and anxiety and all of these feelings into like into music in this piece. Um, I wouldn't say it's more the frustration. It's generally the anxiety more mm-hmm. than anything else. Um, a lot of that is sort of represented in the kind of random walking synthesizer throughout, uh, which is just from the Euro rack and, um, I did some things with the clock to really stutter everything and glitch it up a bit. And I put that in the background. It's just kind of giving you this constant feeling that something is on edge. Nothing's pitch quantized. Mm-hmm. So everything is just slightly offset. Um, I deliberately tuned the oscillators to be just a little bit out, uh, just within that realm of human hearing. So it sounds like it's being tempered almost. And then when you have the other instruments come in, uh, then it just seems all the more 
unstable and restless and really kind of uh, drawing the attention away from what are, for me, very stable, almost tonal uh, melodic lines. So in it seemed like in listening to a couple of other of your fixed media pieces that kind of um, traditional sounding like traditional sounding instruments kind of play a big part in your acoustic pieces. I mean, in this piece, I kind of hear something that is like an oboe and then something that's, I think, a dulcimer. Um, that was actually a uh, cantele. It's a Finnish concert zither. Oh, okay. Going for the exotics. Is and it was that uh recorded or was that um like sampled? Uh no, that was a sample library. Okay. Um, I think it was uh UVI's World Suite. So so are all the kind of instrumental sounds in this piece uh sample libraries and and kind of controlled by MIDI or whatever? Um some of them are, some of them are not. Oh, okay. yeah, the violin is real. That is me okay. actually playing. Um, and generally, if you hear violin, mandolin, uke, or guitar, that's probably me playing. Mm-hmm. Um, except there are a couple exceptions. You know, obviously, I don't have access to a uh, you know a 1950s three PAF pickup <laughs> Les Paul custom. Although that's nice. I mean, yeah, but you know, something like that costs over a hundred grand. So yeah, yeah, sample library costs. 800 bucks i can see which one's cheaper so for a lot of these these instrumental sounds that you're using in the in the acousmatic pieces is it is it kind of just like a, a matter of you want to work with these sounds and the sample libraries are the most accessible and most readily available for you to work with um in general yeah that's mm-hmm. what it is if i can find a live player that will come in and i can work with them then i'll do that and I have done that with other pieces, too. Um, I've got another piece that uses uh, oboe sounds that have been slowed down and granulated uh, and then time-stretched to, like, six or 700% their original mm-hmm. length. And that was all a live oboe player originally. So, other, I mean, other than the very exotic instruments, why not kind of write this as, as like, a chamber ensemble piece with electronics? Um, control. Okay. I'm a control freak. <laughs> it's part and parcel of being a composer. Yeah. Uh, but also, I think um, in writing this, I was really trying to kind of tap into the uh, emotional state more. And I think that when I write pencil to paper for a chamber ensemble piece or a solo piece or whatever, I tend to become a little bit more process oriented than mm-hmm. I normally would if I'm just sitting down at the computer and improving. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it, it has to do with kind of creating a more organic uh, or your workflow is more organic and you have that kind of immediate feedback that acousmatic music gives you instead of, you know, just trying to project yourself into that, that sound world or that headspace you're trying to create, but you don't really know, you know, what is it, is it really going to work? And you, and you have that immediate feedback with acousmatic music. It's partly that, but also it's partly the accessibility of uh, the music and the instruments. Mm, Okay. I mean, uh, the pieces that I gave you are what I would consider the most accessible pieces that I write. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
because a lot of the other stuff that I write is really crazy. Like, hey, I wrote a max patch. It granulates, destroys, does uh, ring modulation and all sorts of pitch shifting and play that on whatever instrument you so desire. Okay. All right. <laughs> I want to hear that piece. <laughs> uh, well, uh, that's coming up in uh, September, I think, is when we're going to do the premiere. Awesome. But it's it's wild. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it seems like a you know, cosmetic... Sorry. So. Go ahead. Uh, but yeah, you see that, and then you see other pieces that I do, uh, like the piece I'm doing at Seamus, is all synthesizer and just massive, massive processing uh, inside a DAW. Mm-hmm. And it's all about transforming this very, very small sample of just a couple of clicks into this gigantic sonic landscape. I'm looking forward to that. We're gonna and, and we're gonna talk about that in the uh, in the Seamus episode, which is gonna right. be coming up in a uh, well, I guess you know just less than a month. Um, it seems like acousmatic music is a large portion of the music that you write. Um, why why is that? What is um, what is kind of driving you to write these pieces for acousmatic music instead of writing for performers? I mean, you already mentioned kind of control, but what else? Yeah. Also, kind of getting outside of what's possible to do with traditional instruments. Mm-hmm. So when I do write for traditional instruments, there's generally a very large uh, max component or you know, syncing it up with uh, pre-recorded music. But uh, a lot of it is really just exploring the different sounds that are only possible in acousmatic music and looking at what happens if I time stretch this sample. Like, hey, I just recorded this on my cell phone and this sounds really cool. And now how can I explore that? How can I transform it? What can I do with it? Uh, what if I run it through my usual bank of effects? Mm-hmm. What if I do other things with it? It's, it really is just exploring the different possibilities of sound and timbre. And then sometimes bringing in uh, the sounds of more traditional instruments to give the audience something to latch onto mm-hmm. when right. you have this gigantic swirling of effects and the panning is going around and, 18 speakers or whatever it's set for uh just something to latch on to well let's go ahead and listen to this so this is uh the piece l'esprit enquiet
so next, uh, I guess the last piece we're going to talk about, and we're going to hear three movements, and some will be complete movements, some will be excerpts, but they're all from this large piece that you wrote over uh, 2015 and 2016 called Concrete Oasis. And I believe that we talked about this when we met up at the uh, 2015 ICMC in Denton. Right. I was in the process of writing it at that time. Yeah. I remember you telling me about, I think you had a couple like really big works uh, going almost simultaneously or something. You had this and maybe an orchestra piece or something. Uh, Yeah. I had a piece for uh, orchestra and live electronics Right, right. I wrote at the same time. Yeah. And so this piece you kind of say in the notes is about urban decay and renewal so where did that kind of interest begin for you? Uh, well, living in Michigan and growing up here, you see a lot of the decay side. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's omnipresent. Everywhere you go, you see abandoned buildings, factories, uh, gigantic parking lots that have been reclaimed by weeds and repurposed or uh, just left to uh, you know, grow or fall apart. Yeah. So the urban decay thing is something that you see just everywhere. It's kind of hard not to be influenced by it here. Uh, And a lot of people find it extremely depressing. And the solution is, well, what do we do? Well, let's tear it down and build McMansions. (laughs) Yeah, 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 totally. So, okay. Except for the fact that no one can afford those. And maybe we need to, do something about that job situation everybody's talking about. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and for, I think for me growing up in uh, Northwest Ohio in Toledo, you know, I was, I was 10 minutes from the border. So we spent, and and my grandparents lived in Michigan. So we spent uh, quite a bit of time in Michigan. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think that uh, Toledo has, when I was growing up, it was definitely in that period where Toledo as a city was kind of going downhill. And then, you know, they, they moved the mud hens into downtown and they revitalized like that scene. And, and, and somehow like that scene, I mean, downtown Toledo is still not really truly a great place to be, but, um, it seemed like as I kept going back over the years and, you know, kind of visiting my old neighborhood, my old neighborhood was the one that was really suffering, suffering yeah. the the decay and like everyone move, moving out, you know, like, um, for instance, you know, all the, the three schools I went to in Toledo, they're gone, you know, yeah. all been torn down and rebuilt. All the people I ever knew that lived in my neighborhood have moved out, moved into the suburbs and you know, my parents included. And yeah, yeah, so it seems that if, if you grew up in the, in the Midwest, I'm sure this will ring a chord with just about anyone, you know? Oh yeah. I, uh, I remember when I was in high school, there was a GM plant literally right across the street from the high school. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I remember assemblies where they would bring us down to the auditorium and Sparky, the spark plug man from GM would tell us about the wonderful careers that we would have in the automotive uh, manufacturing assembly line. Was, was Sparky kind of like a plush, uh, 
you know, mascot. I or wish something. it was no. just a guy in a suit who called himself oh. Sparky. That seems like a wasted opportunity. It totally does. And of course, you know, being the cynical high school student, I'm sitting there like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And, you know, I appreciate your enthusiasm. Sparky. But I, yeah, but I don't. So. <laughs> so the three, you, this piece is uh, seven movements long and it's, it, it's like a CD length. Uh, piece. uh yeah it's just under 50 minutes right so <clears throat> the the seven movements that you have are uh mr old's riled wild <sighs> let me try that again mr old's <laughs> why can't i say that <laughs> mr old's wild ride uh factory scenes pre-war post detroit 1967 Simple economics, exploring the remains of a giant, a tale of two rivers, and new beer in old buildings. So the three that I kind of want to focus on are the second movement, the third movement, and the sixth movement. So this will be Factory Scenes, Detroit 1967, and A Tale of Two Rivers. So let's start off with uh, Factory Scenes. Um, this, there's, and I, I think this is a motive that like kind of runs throughout the piece it shows up in a lot of different movements but you have kind of this descending chromatic motive kind of against a drone and especially with this particular movement i have to say it really reminded me like of a nine inch nails track <laughs> that is awesome i am a huge trent Reznor fan yeah um so i don't think that was a conscious decision okay but if it shows up in my work uh i will totally give them credit yeah so well, yes. and him coming from like industrial Cleveland, and and I think you know he, I, is he from Ohio? I think he's from Ohio. I think he's from Ohio. Yeah, maybe Pennsylvania, but I'm yeah. pretty sure it's one of those two. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that kind of uh, in terms of you know uh, a a rock or you know industrial electronic scene. I mean, I think that that kind of influence plays for for both of you in a way but just tell us what this what this particular uh movement factory scenes is kind of about uh factory scenes is really looking at the build-up of american uh assembly line industry just generally in the midwest not really any specific state at this point uh from the introduction of the assembly line with uh ford in detroit and other parts of michigan up to uh, World War II when they're repurposed to become uh, you know, assembly lines for weapons, planes, tanks, whatever the U.S. government needed. And then after that, when you have uh, the post-war boom and all this money being invested, workers flooding, you have the Great Migration North uh, into Detroit and just tons and tons of workers coming in there because they can achieve the suburban American dream, the mm -hmm. white picket fence um, although then that kind of leads into some issues that we discuss in the next movement uh, with race and segregation and riots and all of that stuff. Where are you getting the sounds for for the, all these like factory? I mean, the, the, it, it it this movement and the next movement in particular kind of overwhelm the senses. And yeah. I, and I'm like, it's the fact the factory you could imagine, you know, being on a an assembly line floor and and hearing something 
pretty damn close to this, you know, so where kind of, where are you getting these sounds? Um, some of them are just things that I found on freesound.org. Some are things that I, you know, raided my parents' garage and found different tools and set up microphones in there and recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, in Detroit 1967, the glass-breaking sounds are me uh, maybe, I don't want to say breaking into, but unauthorized <laughs> use of a large dumpster uh-huh. and setting up a portable recorder and breaking glass bottles by throwing them into that. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there was one time at uh at Bowling Green while I was there as a as an undergrad student and I think maybe I, I don't know if I've talked about this before but um I always had this dream and it was a very strange dream but I always had this like desire to take a break drum you know because I was a percussionist take a break drum and throw it into a harp and get the harp to like <laughs> fall off the stage I don't it was I don't know I just think it would be it would be so satisfying and I don't know why, but one night, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, another percussionist at Bowling Green, he called me and he was like, Rob, come down to the loading dock by the dumpster. They have set out the inside of an upright piano. like the Close pi- enough. The- close enough, right? <laughs> so we got a break drum and we went out and, you know, discus threw it straight into the harp by the dumpster. And it made a good sound. I have to say, it was. I. It, it's unfortunate at that point I wasn't into electronic music. I didn't record oh. anything. Like I kind of wish I had that, but yeah, dump, dumpsters are fun. <laughs> well, and you know, Craigslist is also a great source of terrible, terrible musical instruments mm-hmm. that are one step away from the trash heap. Yeah. So, you know, I always tell my students, Craigslist is where musical dreams go to die. And where electronic music gets reborn. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, if you want to grab a uh, an upright piano uh, off of Craigslist, I mean, I will drive down with microphones and we can, uh, yeah, we can do you it, know, wing right? break drums at it for a couple hours. There's, there's another piece of um, uh, this composer who's from the UK. His name's Josh Horsley. And I met him at Toronto uh, at the, at the ties, um, Toronto International Electroacoustic Symposium when I was there the first time and he has this eight channel piece and it's uh it's him destroying a piano that was gifted to him by his then very recent (laughs) (laughs) ex-wife and that's the entire piece it's just him just destroying it with hammers (laughs) I think it's uh I think Jason Charney has a piece where he has a destroyed piano mm-hmm. and uses the sounds of destroying the piano and then has like an installation of the remains of it. Yeah. As that's well. so, that's so cool. So let's take a listen to this. This is going to be uh, an excerpt of factory scenes.
All right. So coming back, you we already a little bit alluded to what Detroit 1967 is going to be about, but but you know you were obviously in Detroit in 1967. There was a pretty major race riot. So, well, I wasn't there. Yeah, me, I mean, me I was neither. <laughs> born a couple of years after that. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. There was a massive, massive riot in uh, Detroit in 1967. Uh, Catherine Bigelow made a movie about it recently, uh, which I still haven't seen. But you know, is that just whatever. called Detroit? It is called just Detroit. Okay, I was wondering what that was. Yeah. Yep. I've I've been kind of out of movies for a, a while. I can sympathize. Yeah. Uh, again, to my students, I blame you. <laughs> you are the reason your professor doesn't have a life. Exactly. Um, so, I guess again, you know, you created a digital riot um, yeah. in this in this piece, and I think you do something in this in this movement that only acousmatic music can do as opposed to other, you know, other, uh, types of music or, or, you know, other performance situations is that you made me feel like I was there and not by giving me realism, but by kind of overwhelming one sense that then engages the others to, to kind of make me feel just, uncomfortable and on edge yeah um this one i'm guessing you're probably referring to just the overwhelming sense of the crowds and the sirens and also to a lesser extent probably the panning Mm -hmm. that's going throughout um yeah the panning is the easiest thing to talk about there's tons of automation Mm -hmm. uh some of it is using uh doppler shifting to get the siren moving from one sound uh, source to the other. Um, some of it is just very deliberately creating large-scale ensemble-sized groups for the uh, sound of the rioters and then placing those around the stereo field uh, with very, very careful attention to how I'm setting uh, the volume and the reverb on those as well mm-hmm. to really make it uh, essentially uh, putting the listener in the center of that. Um, other things, though, it is just finding the sound sources and really overwhelming the senses, uh, turning up the grit, going for that overdrive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I used a lot of different noise synths in there as well, uh, just to take those and just run it through with a ring modulator to add extra grit to the crowd noises, uh, which the crowd... Actually, I couldn't find a sample of a you know English-speaking crowd rioting that didn't sound like really cheesy and manufactured. Right. Yeah. So this one's kind of interesting. I found uh, archival footage of the riots at the Berlin Wall in '89, hmm. uh, right before they tore that down, and I took that. So obviously it's in German. Reversed it, and then granulated the reversed version of that, and you get this really indistinct crowds but you can't really pick out what they're saying but you think you can every once in a while yeah that's that's so interesting because i was wondering how you did the crowd i mean uh, 
you know, it it would not be advisable to like take take your Zoom and go to go to a riot. I mean, if you could even know where that would even happen, but um but yeah, that okay. That's that's really interesting. And you were kind of using the synths, I would I would kind of assume to because this this piece it just it's full. Yeah. You know, it's like every you 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 kind of think about the uh the, the the phrase like wall of sound that's what you're giving us right you know so you you filled it up in 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 every way using a lot of different sources yeah um part of that actually is kind of fun i hooked up my theremin and was controlling the volume with the antenna from the theremin for all of the tracks okay so that's that's really helpful in giving it this really organic feel to the different parts of the crowd, to the different sirens. It's literally me just raising and lowering my hand oh, the entire so time cool. for every single track. That is so cool. Yeah, I mean, and that and that does give it a, uh, like you say, a more organic feel as opposed to, you know, drawing automation lines and points and curves and stuff like that. That's, that's always the stuff that gets me, like... Oh Jesus! You know, I've I've got to yeah. do I've got to do this now, or you know, it slows down the work process. That's really interesting that you're that you're use that you're using a theremin like that. That's cool. Yeah, the only downside is that if you look at it, it has so many breakpoints. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I had to do a lot of cleanup work on that to make it uh, stop stuttering mm-hmm. because it was overloading the sound card. It was you know, running through all the RAM on my system on all of those breakpoints. And my computer was just like, no, not going to handle it. Nope, nope, nope. Clean me up. (laughs) So uh, let's, let's listen to this movement. This is Detroit 1967.
before we get to the last movement, this uh, this CD project was funded by the Arts Council of Greater Lansing. It was. Yeah, I mean, what was what was what was that like? I mean, you obviously had this idea first, and then and then took it to them. Yeah, every couple of years they do competitive grants for different artists, and uh, it almost always goes to visual artists because that's very easy for the public to. Yeah to grasp, you know, Hey, here's a statue of a kid with a yellow umbrella. Isn't it uh, cool? It's commentary on acid rain. See the umbrella is kind of disintegrating over time. And Ooh, um, whereas writing, uh, music is a little bit harder and especially the type of music that I write. Right. Yeah. So I had to really come up with a really good justification of, you know, I have this idea for this piece, but I need, funding to you know purchase some of the sound libraries to do things like this uh with going around and getting access to vacant buildings so i can record impulse responses for the convolution Mm, yeah um and then you know i need to be able to hire artists to do the album artwork so hey you know i need money that i can spend in the community to support the arts Stuff like that. That's cool. So segueing nicely, talking about polluted water, um, let's go into the uh, from acid rain to uh, two rivers, and both of them are were at one time or still currently are very much uh, polluted. A tale of two rivers, and what which uh, what are the two rivers and kind of the stories behind them that you're using? Okay. Well, on the left channel, you have the Cuyahoga River. And on the right channel, you hear the Flint River. Uh, these are just generic river sounds. I think I recorded them both at the Grand River in Lansing, mm-hmm. not either site. So not site specific. I know. Don't don't yell at me later. Uh, but yeah, the Cuyahoga River was the river that was so polluted that it famously caught fire. Yeah, repeatedly. But in, I think it was 69 or 70, a photographer from Time happened to be in Ohio with his camera for something else entirely and took photos of the river on fire. Mm -hmm. And obviously that kind of freaks people out when you see, (laughs) hey, it's water and it's burning. (laughs) That's, that, that doesn't, this does not compute. (laughs) Well, get used to it because we're getting rid of environmental re- regulations because yeah. they're, uh, you know, not necessary. So go Scott Pruitt. <laughs> you know, for as much uh, for as much disdain as the current administration has for China, they're they're putting us closer and closer to being China. You know. Well, and yeah, the uh, Communist Party just voted to remove presidential term limits. Yep. So I yeah, think. That was... uh, that was uh, some news I saw that I, I immediately said, wow, that's the worst thing in the world. Oh, maybe not the world. The worst thing in China. Well, I think in a matter of years, it will be the worst thing in the world. We I just turned I mean, the world's biggest country into a dictatorship. Right. But, you know, there's that. And then there's Russia the next day announcing, hey, we just created a new super nuke. So. Right. <laughs> it's a it's a wonderful time to be alive. Yeah, so I'm kind of doing a coin flip for a worst thing in the world. Okay, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> didn't um, didn't REM write a song about the Cuyahoga? Uh, I think they did. I think. 
Yeah. Cuyahoga. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. I think I had that tape. So, uh, uh, but, you know, yeah, we have the, the Cuyahoga polluted. on fire. <laughs> literally. And, uh, literally on fire. And then, you know, so that that's in the late 60s, early 70s, something like that. And then, just still currently, we have the Flint River. Right. Uh, the Flint River... Uh, is part of the reason why there is a water crisis in Flint, Michigan, which is where I teach, among other places. Um, the Flint River is just, it's notoriously polluted. Um, you have tons of industrial waste being dumped into the river because, you know, fuck environmental re- regulations. We don't need those. <laughs> Seriously. Who cares? Yeah. Now, hey, it's its not like people drink out of this, is it? <laughs> And for a long time, in fact, people did not drink out of that water because it's so freaking polluted that you would have pretty severe problems. Yeah. Uh, But then, you know, Michigan, we have this governor who thinks that, you know, the bottom line is the most important Republican. Mm -hmm. Uh, He put a lot of towns like Detroit and Flint under emergency financial uh, manager control. So you have these unelected people who report only to the governor that could override any contract, any decision by the mayor and the city council. It stripped all power away from the voters. So after a couple of those uh, emergency financial managers in Flint, uh, what happened was the Flint City Council had voted to move away from the Detroit uh, water supply to a new water supply from the Karandangi Water Authority, which would have been more local. It would have been uh, cheaper was mm-hmm. the big thing. And it would not have been from a source that's 90 miles away. Right. But unfortunately, there were problems getting that started. So the financial manager just said, nope, cancel that contract. We're just going to get our water from the Flint River. And everybody immediately said, what in the fuck are you thinking? Yeah. This is a really bad idea. He's like, no, no, no. We can, we'll just run it through the water treatment plant. And famously took photos, you know, drinking a glass of <laughs> water from there, uh, which hiding his Dasani yeah, bottle behind his back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what happened was uh, very quickly people started to realize this is polluted as hell. Mm-hmm. GM wouldn't even use it to clean off uh, industrial machine because it was eating through the metal on the machines. Oh, my God. Yeah. So GM switched to a private water uh, contractor almost immediately when that happened, but they left it for the residents in Flint. So normally they were able to filter out a lot of the toxins. I, I will give them credit for that, but they did not put corrosion inhibitors in the water so you still have all of these industrial chemicals floating through plus uh you know the rivers used for dumping cars oh my god so battery acid oil all this other stuff uh i mean there's been any number of dead bodies found in there too of uh animals even humans so yeah it's a cesspool (laughs) what did wasn't all of that together wasn't there something having to do with the also the age uh, and deterioration of the pipes? Like right. there were there was a lot of lead going into that water, right? And that's the problem is that they didn't have uh, corrosion inhibitors. Yeah, in this. Right. So Flint's 
uh, water pipes are primarily not necessarily all lead, but a lot of them are lead, and they used lead solder to solder the pipes together. So without having the corrosion inhibitors in the water, uh, normally what would happen is it would create rust, and you would build up this rust scale inside the pipes, kind of like plaque hardening in your arteries if uh-huh. you eat nothing but fast food. <laughs> uh, only unlike the plaque, which would eventually give you the heart attack and kill you, this actually protects the pipes. So the water is flowing through. It's building up this layer of metal and calcium that keeps the pipes together and protects the water from leaching lead from the pipes or from the soldered joints Uh and getting that into people. They didn't put those corrosion inhibitors in there, though. So it started to destroy the scale on the interior of the pipes and then eventually hit the pipes themselves and started leaching lead into the drinking water supply for people in the city. (laughs) And we saw how well that worked out for the Romans. I mean... (laughs) Uh, Yeah, lead is a neurotoxin. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And especially for kids, you know, this is something that they're going to be dealing with for the rest of their lives. You know, we're looking at what's going to happen, you know, probably around 2030 is when it's really going to start hitting. You're going to have a massive, massive need for... Uh, just general support for kids whose brains were effectively destroyed by exposure to a neurotoxin mm-hmm. from the government. Yeah, it's I, I, I'm I'm remembering like the the most recent round of um, uh, Cosmos, you know, yeah. where where they have that episode about the guy who figured out that oh my god, lead is so pervasive in our lives because of you know, it was, it was in the gasoline at that time and, and, and everything else. And I mean, how, how big of a fight he went through to take on, you know, the big, you know, the oil companies and everything. And it's like, that was, that was someone fighting against a, you know, private, ultimately private companies. This is the government doing this to its own people. I mean, that's well, and it gets much worse actually too. Uh, the cost of the corrosion inhibitors for a city the size of Flint would have only been about a hundred bucks a day. Oh my god! But that's not cost effective. Oh my god! So they didn't put those in. Yeah, science isn't real, right? Yeah, no, <clears throat> nope. Uh, you know, we're just gonna pray about it. Thoughts and prayers. That'll <laughs> that'll solve everything. <laughs> So musically, you kind of uh, treat the two different water sources in different ways. And so t- tell me a little bit about that. Uh, well, with the Cuyahoga on the left side, uh, that is just going through a uh, Max for Live device in Ableton. And I am morphing the sound mm-hmm. so that it starts off with just a sample of a river. And then gradually I morph it into the sound of uh, some fire burning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think I did a little bit of extra stuff just to kind of keep the balance between the two so it sounds like the water itself is on fire. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then gradually, as the people in Ohio got their shit together, they decided, hey, maybe we shouldn't have burning rivers. (laughs) (laughs) And being the sensible people that they were, they decided, hey, let's clean this up. So as the piece goes on, it morphs into the burning river and then it morphs out of that and back to sort of this uh, pristine 
River sample. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, with the Flint River, on the other hand, it starts off and then it just gradually keeps eroding and decaying throughout. So it's a process of uh, playing around with spectral filtering and a little bit of delay lines and just really kind of giving it this uh, extension to the harmonics and drawing the harmonics out a little bit from the river. So it almost sounds oily. Yeah. the best way I can describe it. You lose the, you lose the kind of uh, complexity of that is, it's kind of weird because water just by itself is a very simple, simple molecule. But when it, when you hear water, it's a very complex sound. And then you, you add into it all of these other very complex molecules that ultimately turn it into a very the sound wise like very slick and yeah and very yeah like you said oil that's interesting okay yeah it was one of those i was just playing around in max and trying to figure out what can i do with the sound and hey that's really cool mm-hmm. i like that sound let's uh let's do that and then just automate the uh level on it mm-hmm. and really ride that So let's take a listen to this. This is A Tale of Two Rivers. Thank you. 
Cool. So now we come to the last question, the question that I ask all the uh, composers or artists who are ever on the podcast. How did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Uh, how did I come to music or how did I come to composition? Either one. Okay. Um, well, music's the easier one to answer. Um, that is that I started uh, taking violin in public schools at uh, fifth grade mm-hmm. and it was a way to get out of class. <laughs> I love the honesty. <laughs> so that was great. You know, you would go to uh, the violin class for an hour a week and it was just a way to get out mm-hmm. and not have to sit because I was kind of that kid that would finish all their stuff really quick for the assignment and then just sit there and be bored. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then subsequently get a little destructive or just (laughs) stick my nose in a book that was probably, uh, you know, age inappropriate, (laughs) whatever you want to call it. I think a lot of composers can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, I think a lot of composers, you know, they, they do that exact same thing. Yeah. You know, ev- probably every musician or well, every composer becomes a performer first and then they start getting bored. Right. And then they start, you know, messing around with, oh, well, let's do a little, do a little improvisation and, oh, this, this kind of sounds cool. This is way more fun than working on my solo and ensemble music or whatever it's going to be. Well, and solo and ensemble actually kind of started pushing me down the career towards being a performer. Yeah. You know, I started taking private lessons. I started getting pretty decent, actually, as a solo violinist. And then I got to the point of, I think it was my freshman year, and the judges at solo and ensemble were starting to tell me, you need to consider going into music professionally. That's cool. It's like, okay. So I started auditioning to colleges, started getting accepted to colleges, and um, ended up going to Hope uh, because of the scholarship. And then while I was there, I really, I had taken uh, theory classes at uh, the community college when I was still in high school uh, Uh back home. And so I started in as a sophomore in the theory and oral skills track and was able to, you know, get through that really quickly and go into counterpoint and post-tonal theory a year early. So they really kind of didn't know what to do with me mm-hmm. in terms of the theory sequence. So, um, in counterpoint, so, so again, you had finished all your work early and exactly. you were sitting there kind of bored. <laughs> right. So, uh, I remember in theory, I was, uh, writing these exercises and we had like an exercise of, uh, what was it? He gave us like an Emily Dickinson poem and just said, set this for piano and voice. Mm-hmm. And I did this Ivesian pan diatonic, you know, every <laughs> staff was in a different key signature and I ended up, uh, getting the paper back and it had a zero on it. But instead <laughs> of having, yeah, I mean, he was really mad. He was like, no, you're supposed to do just like a one, four, five, one. I'm like, you didn't say that. <laughs> I but, did in seven yeah. different keys simultaneously. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that kind of started the push a little bit, but then in counterpoint, uh, my counterpoint teacher just, I turned in an exercise one time and he, they were playing through it in class and he just 
looked at me and said, okay, that's it. You're taking composition lessons next semester. Mm. That's great. And that was the start of it. And so then every person who composed on staff there had to uh, get a whack at me as a student Uh and try and impart some uh, value of, hey, you know, maybe maybe you should go with this Copeland style, uh, you know, neo tonalist stuff. And I'm like, hey, I'm not really that interested in Mm -hmm. that. Then um, I studied with uh, the recording uh, teacher there. And that was just, hey, let's do three-hour lessons every Monday, and here's Pro Tools, and let's do acousmatic music, and let's sample all this stuff, let's manipulate it. And that really started me down the path to the dark side. <laughs> uh, but that then especially, the Yeah, that opened the door. I mean, I was still writing traditional pencil and paper stuff, and I still do that. I mean, it was it was way more tonal than what I would write now. There were no quarter flats, quarter sharps, mm-hmm. anything like that. Um, but then right before my senior year, I destroyed my shoulder. Oh yeah. An accident. Yeah. So slipped, fell, nailed the left shoulder. Uh, there was permanent separation in the joint there. So that ended the six hours of daily practice mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so at that point, I had been writing more and more, but uh, during my senior year, I really just started focusing on composing mm-hmm. more than anything else, and then surprisingly got accepted to grad schools. Yeah, awesome. Well, uh, before we go, can you tell people where they can you know, find your music and connect with you online and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, you can definitely find me on uh, my website. It's benferman.com. Or I do a lot on Twitter, uh, at B Furman. It tends to get, uh, you know, ranty and crazy occasionally. <laughs> Especially in this day and age. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that depends on uh, the relative levels of caffeine that are in my bloodstream <laughs> at any given time. And then where can, where can people find your podcast? Um, so the podcast that I co-host is Patch In uh, with Nate Blyton. And that is on iTunes. It's on uh, all the other major podcasting sources you would want. So pick your poison and download it. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for doing this, Ben. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com. Thank you.